This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We work with the assumption that the brain is plastic and, and, why, and that it's adaptable and that it's basically a massive learning device, which is why I was so resistant to uh, the, any link to eugenics or genetics, uh, you know, because the whole point of the brain is that, is that you're not beholden by your genes or the physical device. You know, the whole point of the brain is that it's like a computer, right? It, it is a learning device. There's great joy in training your own brain. Sometimes you have a podcast and you get to chat to the Dean of Yale University and a humbler, smarter person you'll never meet. It's Dr. Marvin Chun, who is also a professor of psychology and neuroscience and has done some quite remarkable work looking into our brains. I can't tell you how fascinated I am by this stuff, although I will tell you I am very fascinated by it. I was investigating Dr. Chun's work because I'm writing a book about the nature or uh, psychology of secrets. And one interesting facet of secrets is that we are moving towards a time when they will no longer exist, the death of the secrets. I mean, at least to an extent. I mean, first we have technology and recording devices that makes it harder and harder to keep secrets. But... It's not just recording devices. I mean, our minds are sort of computers that store all these kinds of things, and they can be hacked too. Uh, fMRI scans are able to produce video images. This is today. This is technology we already have of what people are looking at or even thinking of. As Dr. Chun explains, we're not yet at a stage where we can really extract secrets and individual thoughts accurately. Even the videos of what people are looking at are fairly blurry and, and a little bit difficult to decipher, but they are unbelievably impressive. And I'd recommend looking up his excellent TED talk called Reading Minds to sneak a peek at these images. There's also a great talk by Jack Gallant on the topic. I mean, who knew that this existed, that this technology, and it has been around for over 10 years now, um, that they can look into people's brains and see what they're looking at and stuff. We are going to talk in this episode about all the fascinating consequences and ramifications of this technology and what it means for us, especially with regards to free will and determinism, brain diseases, communicating with people in comas, and criminalizing crimes of the mind. I really enjoyed this one and hope you do too. You're on the edge of the human mind with Dr. Marvin Chun. Tell me, uh, Professor Chun, uh, a little bit about your background, because you're a dean, um, and that, I think, is an American word, or you were a dean. What, what exactly does that mean, and what's your background in, in uh, science and stuff? Uh, yeah, yes, so I, I'm a professor of psychology and neuroscience and cognitive science at Yale University. Uh, I've been in this role for over 20 years, uh, and in this role, I, I uh, do research, of course, lead a laboratory and I teach undergraduates and uh, graduate students. Um, and then separately, uh, for the past five years, I've also taken on an administrative role, uh, and that is the role as Dean of Yale College, uh, where uh, I'm, I'm in charge of the undergraduate um, 
a college, basically. Uh, I'm in charge of the curriculum uh, and, um, uh, and academic affairs and student affairs and all those uh, offices that are associated with uh, supporting our uh, undergraduate students. Do all of you sort of Yale professors get together and talk about um, clever stuff? Like, I mean, I had Professor Paul Bloom on here. Do you know him? He was at Yale. Yeah, he, he was actually a very, a very close friend. Uh, and um, and also uh, we, we have um, a lot in common in the sense that uh, he, he also taught a, a a course called Introduction to Psychology, which was our basic uh, large course for uh, Yale undergraduate students, uh, where the uh, enrollment numbers in the hundreds. And he and I were the two people who who taught that course uh, in large numbers. Um, and, uh, and so we would, uh, I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, of his scholarship, but also I'm a huge fan of his his teaching abilities. He's a remarkable uh, speaker and teacher. Oh, he is fantastic. I got. I, we were talking about his book, The Sweet Spot. So tell me, so that TED talk that I watched of yours from quite a few years ago now just blew my mind. It's incredible. Oh, thank you. Uh, really, really impressive stuff. Um, I guess just for people listening who haven't seen it yet, I, I, I would definitely advise that they do. Would you, could you give us a brief overview of what that was about? Uh, yes. Uh, so my my research uh, is in a field called cognitive neuroscience, uh, and basically we're trying to understand how 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 the brain supports um, the mind and behavior. Uh, and the specific uh, area of of my research interest is to understand uh, what makes people different, uh, and hence what is different about people's brains that make them different. Uh, and and I'm interested in all kinds of differences, but especially cognitive differences and cognitive abilities. Uh, my specialty is understanding uh, what makes people, what makes some people more attentive and focused, uh, and what makes some people more distracted and 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 uh, and less able to fulfill their uh, you know potential, cognitive potential. Um, and what, what's interesting is that we're able to use uh, brain scanners to. Um, to kind of differentiate uh, which people are more attentive and which people are, are more distracted. Uh, and we can do that just based on uh, scanning their brain activity even, even while they're not doing anything at all because everyone's brain is always active and they turn out to be uh, active in very unique ways uh, so that it kind of acts like a brain fingerprint. And, uh, and parts of that unique brain activity seem to correlate with a person's ability to attend and to stay focused, uh, and and kind of to you know to kind of summarize our, our basic finding, you know I can put anyone in a brain scanner and we and we use MRI scanners. I can put them in a scanner and scan them for 15 minutes, and I can read out how attentive they are. I can read out um, if they have uh, ADHD. I can read out how what their IQ uh, would be if they were to wow. take an IQ test. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I can read out their personality. Um, and other people have done things like read out how well, uh, how creative a person is. Um, and, and I think the potential is uh, unlimited in that, you know, along the many different ways that people can differ, uh, in theory, we should be able to read that out from their brain scans. Wow, that makes things really complicated. Because well, firstly, I've got a double question here then. So firstly, 
ADHD, that's, you know, attention deficit disorder. And is it some people have it and some don't, or is there a spectrum? And then of just some people are really, really far one way and it gradually it becomes, you know, people can concentrate uh, better. And and also what ramifications does that have for teaching in classrooms and stuff? If you've got like, you know, oh, come on, you've got to concentrate better. Well, they can't, their brains literally can't do it. That's right. And um, so, so I, I, th I think we think of attentiveness uh, along a continuum and, and then towards one end of the continuum where, um, where, where a person's ability to stay focused is less than others. Uh, that's, that's the range in which we would diagnose someone with attention deficit disorder. Um, and, and the goal here is that it's, it's kind of hard to, it's actually pretty hard and subjective to diagnose. Um, someone's distractibility. Uh, and the, so the goal of the research um, is to try to develop quantitative measures of how attentive a person is. So for example, if you go to a hospital and, uh, and you have a fever, like they don't, the doctor doesn't ask you like, you know, what do you think your fever is? You know, try to guess what your, you know, how hot do you feel? Um, you know, they, they stick a thermometer <laughs> uh, in you. And, and I think the same, the, the same goal applies for brain imaging is that instead of trying to get subjective measurements or assessments of how attentive a person is, can we do so more objectively based on their brain activity? Wow, that's going to change schools and things like that. Um, and, and I think what I'm really, really interested in as well, um, which drew me to your work is this concept of mind reading, because it sounds like something of science fiction. I think most of the listeners to this podcast are fairly lay people who have an interest, well, like myself, who have an interest in these kinds of things. Um, <laughs> I think it will be news to most people that that's sort of possible mind reading and i saw sort of the pictures and things you can show what someone's so so where are we with that at the moment what can you read of someone's mind yeah thank you um and, and so the so i have two lines of work uh the work that i just described the brain fingerprinting work trying to predict a person's individuality uh much of the work i just described was led by um a former graduate student monica rosenberg who's now an assistant professor at the University of Chicago. That's one line of work. And then another line of work uh, that I've been doing even before uh, this work on attentiveness uh, is, is something that I think more closely approaches what people think about when they see um, acts of mind reading, at least in science fiction movies. Uh, and, and the work I, I think that got the most, um, you know, that captured the public's imagination uh, was a study uh, that was led by um, a former undergraduate student, Alan Cohen, and uh, and also a former postdoc, who's uh, uh, Bryce Cool, who's now an, an assist, who's now an associate professor at the University of Oregon, and um, and basically what we did was uh, we were building building on other people's w work, uh, where they're basically trying to guess what people are seeing, uh, so you can show people pictures and. Uh, in the scanner, while, while they're in the scanner being scanned, you can project computer images into the scanner, and then you can measure your brain activity while you're looking at those images. Um, and so the goal, and the goal here is to try to guess and actually redraw um, what we think uh, people were looking at in the scanner. So it's kind of a mind read. It's a form of mind reading because uh, because we're not asking people what they're seeing. We're literally just reading it out from their brain activity. Uh, much of this work was pioneered by Jack Allen at UC Berkeley, um, where he showed videos uh, in the scanner and he built models of how the brain reacts to those videos. And then based on uh, reading out brain activity while people were looking at new videos, he can kind of 
pull from a dictionary uh, the videos that would most closely match that brain activity. In other words, guess with videos what people were looking at. And then what our, our innovation was to just make that more precise by focusing on faces um, and actually drawing uh, the faces that we thought people were looking at while they were in the scanner based on our models uh, of, of the brain responses to faces. Uh, and, and, you know, it's hard to explain uh, verbally, but, uh, you know, if you Google um, uh, Alan Cohen, mind, uh, you know, face reading, uh, you'll, you'll be able to see those images that uh, actually are very impressive and can be reliably matched up with the original faces that people were looking at in the scanner. Um, that, that was an early study that came out in 2015, 2014. Um, and then subsequently, other people have actually improved on the work. So Alan uh, sorry, Bryce Cool, uh, who was the senior author on the work, um, he actually did a study where he can have people just close, you know, just actually imagine uh, faces uh, through what is, what is known as working memory, just have people think about faces, and he was able to reconstruct, guess what faces people were thinking about. Um, and then another group uh, in, in Europe um, uh, was able to demonstrate even better precision, better better reconstructions of the faces using uh, artificial intelligence algorithms. Is it possible to explain how this works to a lay person? Because in my head, there's the, there's the fMRI MRI, and you're seeing neurons and things lighting up. So how does that then compute to uh, what a particular face looks like? Yeah, thank you. That's a good, that's an excellent question. And I'm happy uh, to go into the details. Uh, so MRI, um, what we're doing is we're inferring uh, uh, where, where the brain is more active. And, and we're not able to look at individual neurons, but we are looking at uh, populations of neurons uh, with enough precision that allows us to do all the things that we discussed. Um, but basically what happens is that whenever people look at a face or any object, uh, their brain responds in a, in a certain way that's unique to that object. And so basically we're trying, and you can measure their brain activity in response to object A versus B versus C. And so we, we measure all these unique patterns and we learn their relationship basically. We're learning the association. When you see face A, this is how the brain responds. When you see face D, this is how the brain respond, responds. Uh, and so by learning that relationship through machine learning, through AI, um, then what we can do is present a new face, okay? And then based on how the brain responds to that, we can try to choose the face that would be most similar to what would have otherwise generated that brain response. You know, so it's kind of like a guess. Um, and, um, and, and it just turns out that the guesses with good enough algorithms uh, can be good enough to visualize. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. And, and I'm, I'm really happy that it's something that I was able to understand. So it's learning like a computer, I suppose, the brain. What, what does that mean philosophically for us? Um, and I, 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 I guess these are unanswerable questions to an extent. What does it mean for free will and determinism? Uh, and, and what are we? Are we machines? Um, you know, we, we, uh, I wouldn't go uh, as much to say that we are machines, um, but we are physical, right? Um, we are physical um, and our brain is physical and um, m much of our work, uh, um, you know, relies on the assumption that our, our minds, our behaviors, our, uh, our emotions are all stemming from physical brain activity. Uh, so I think that much is not very controversial. Um, and, but, but, but I think where, uh, it becomes, uh, an interesting discussion is, 
Uh, so what does that mean for understanding our humanity? Uh, and at least I am of the opinion, um, perhaps because I'm at a liberal arts institution uh, where uh, I, I have great respect for my philosopher colleagues and my humanistic colleagues and, and my colleagues in the arts, is that, is that you know, human behavior is too complex and too beautiful, I, I think, to reduce uh, to just some kind of mathematical description of brain activity. I mean, you, you could do so in theory, um, but, but that kind of misses the point. Right, because I think what 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 is special about the human experience is that we we experience love, we experience beauty, uh, we all have our individualities, and we interact with each other um, in in very meaningful ways. Um, the fact that this is um, can someday be explainable in in terms of brain activity doesn't uh, reduce the uh, importance, significance, or, or uh, you know, or the essentialism essence of that. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. But it, but it does, I guess, draw questions about, so we don't know yet, do we, where consciousness and this self-awareness comes from, from these sort of neurons firing off and stuff, uh, or whether computers and other sort of networks might have some sort of self-consciousness or at some point, or, or where that point is, do we, or, or, or do we, or could an AI experience those same, very same things that you uh, just explained and it would be just as, as profound and beautiful? Yeah, that, you know, that, that's, a, that's a terrific uh, question. And, and if we get to uh, the issue of, of, con of self-awareness, um, I, I, think, I think that's a, f a fabulous question. And uh, at least this is not a scientific answer. This is just my own personal thinking. Um, but my expectation is that if computers someday become as sophisticated as the human brain, um, then then I believe that those computers may may have what we understand to be self awareness and uh, and and volition and uh, intentionality. Um, uh, I won't go as far as to say they have a soul, <laughs> um, but uh, or or a spirit. But I, I I do think they will have at least the cognitive aspects uh, and maybe even the behavioral aspects of what we understand to be volition and self awareness. God, there'll definitely be. I'm imagining a two tier system where they'll be sort of helping us and things, and then one day we'll have to sort of go. Well, hang on, they've got the same consciousness and feelings that we do. It's just that theirs is. Our artificially made and ours was biologically made but otherwise there's 
perhaps no no difference uh i think well you know uh they'll be functionally similar <laughs> so that is so i love thinking about the brain a little bit like a computer that could be hacked and looked into and mind read and all that kind of thing and presumably we can also then look into people's uh dreams i've seen you do work on that as well yes uh, and to be clear the work on dreams was not my own lab's work um, but i was um in my lectures i frequently cite my colleagues work uh, and so um you know, again, building on the work from Jack Allen that I explained earlier, where we were decoding, where they were decoding videos that people were seeing, um, just within a few years, it's remarkable that an, another group in Japan, uh, led by Kamitani, um, were, demonstrated that they basically trained up an algorithm to decode dreams. So during the awake state, they learned the relationship between the subject's uh, thinking and imagination uh, to certain categories of images. And then based on that algorithm, then they let this person fall asleep in the scanner. Uh, and then you can you can tell easily when someone starts entering a dream state because, you know, you have rapid eye movements and the, the brain wave patterns change during sleep. And they found that uh, when they decoded the person's brain activity uh, during uh, that person's dream state, uh, they were able to match uh, at least a category of what the young man was thinking about, which in this case was a bunch of women. <laughs> it was really funny watching it because um, it, it was, there was sort of a, there were images and things, but then there was also words sort of associated popping up. And it starts with things like uh, dwelling and building and street and all the things you might expect of, you know, it's almost like the beginning of a TV show. You see those things, the setup. And then the word woman kept getting larger and larger and more important and more prominent in, in the brain. I certainly, that's probably why I wouldn't want to be hooked up to one of those machines do you think you'll be able to to fall asleep as well when they've got like a scanner over your head and stuff you know i i, I uh you know but in the early days of my career when it was hard to get access uh to the scanner um uh, like we were scanning uh doing our studies like even well past midnight or very early in the morning on saturdays um, uh, you know, I think I and even the participants were so exhausted and sleepy uh, that it's actually, you know, possible to sleep in the scanner. <laughs> um, uh, that That's one thing. Uh, but also just getting to your earlier point, uh, of course, I think one of the most fundamental ethical questions that uh, that we what may want to discuss is, is mental privacy, right? Because if you now have the ability to read out how smart someone is or um, how attentive they are or whether they, for example, may have some kind of clinical disorder, then you, you better well be very transparent about what you're doing when you have someone in the scanner. Uh, you know, my, my joke is that uh, I, after I've, you know, developed these technologies again with many colleagues, uh, I no longer allow my grad students to analyze my own brain activity, um, just, you know, as an issue of privacy. Um, uh, and, um, but, um, but, you know, it is, it is something that we can really protect very well in a scientific study uh, because we obtain consent and we, we're very transparent about what we're doing with the brain data and how we will use it. Uh, and, of course, we also always, de uh, we always anonymize our data. We de-identify our data. So that also ensures privacy. Um, but one day when this becomes like a more commonplace so that industry or companies may have access to this uh, you know, this technology, uh, you know, I, I think the laws will need to come, you know, will we'll need to offer important protections for uh, 
for, 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 for being transparent. That presents such a fascinating dilemma, doesn't it? Because uh, on the one hand, if the information is there, then I, you, know, you, you could argue that companies have the right to know it. They want to hire the best person for the job and the brain might show it. But if you do that, then you're in danger of creating like a hierarchical, you know, even more hierarchical system where people who just don't have the right, but they don't stand a chance, do they? It's, that's really complicated. Yeah, uh, you know, but but to the extent, you know, I, I think that that is an issue. I, I think, again, if you're very clear, if a company is very clear about how they will use the brain data, um, then uh, th then I think it will be okay. And actually, my goal um, with the work is actually to benefit uh, the selection, the interview and selection process to improve that process. You know, right now, um, you know, relying on uh, on questionnaires or recommendations or interviews, uh, we know from psychology is very, very subjective and subject to bias. Uh, and and so the goal of again brain imaging is to provide more quantitative measures that may be less subject to bias. Uh, for, for example, like. Uh, I, 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 this may be just a joke coming from my role as dean, but imagine using brain imaging to admit college students <laughs> to, to a particular you know, selective university. Um, the goal there would be not to screen out um, you know, defective uh, brains or, uh, or so on. Like we don't wanna ever diminish the value of hard work and determination and motivation, right? But the goal could be that for those students who come from, let's say, disadvantaged backgrounds, low-income backgrounds, who did not have the benefits of an education to sharpen their test-taking skills or to get the kind of grades that you need to get into a selective university, but maybe their brains are very special. Maybe they're just geniuses in waiting, right? And, and if we could pill those students out that, that with the proper training, um, you know, could really excel and 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 realize potential that was there all the time, I think that would be a noble goal of of these brain imaging technologies. And the same thing applies to uh, you know selection into a company. I guess is what I'm trying to get at. It's so interesting because I had on this podcast Dr. Paige Harden, who uh, she wrote about uh, eugenics, uh, sort of a modern take on it, like not the eugenics of the Nazis, but but also uh, if we're talking about you know hierarchies and structures in our society, we can talk about of course who's born into wealth and stuff like that. But she argues that you know one of the main things if if you're born lucky enough to have a great brain that's a huge advantage in itself and how do we act as a society to make sure it's all fair for everybody if someone just hasn't lucky enough to have great genes yeah yeah and and so again that, that's why i think we should never discount the importance of hard work and and determination um uh you know it, it should not be about innate abilities per se um it really should be about how does a person perform uh, you know, in the task, like, are they good a pianist? Are they a good basketball player? Are they a good mathematician? You know, there's so many domains in which people can excel. And, and it's not determined by genes. It's, you know, genes may, may help, may set some ceiling as to how, for example, how tall a person will be in the case of basketball. Um, but, uh, but it, it absolutely uh, should not, uh, you know, it's not the primal factor in determining whether someone can shoot a basket well or whether someone uh, is good at managing people. You know, there, there are just so many ways in which people can thrive uh, and excel and reach their full potential, regardless of their um, innate uh, skills. I'm writing a book about um, the psychology of secrets. It's from a sort of journalistic point of view more than, but, but using a lot of the empirical data where I can find it. Um, and I want to 
I, I, I sort of arguing that in some senses we're we're seeing the death of secrets, or at least the the clamping down of secrets. And mind reading is one particular way that we might be able to go. So, but before I get into all of that, would you? How would I go about trying to get somebody to read my mind for the sake of my book? Like, uh, like you mean literally, like with a brain scanner yeah. or? Uh, yeah, um, uh, I, I think you would have to come visit New Haven. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that, I mean, that's a joke. Um, but um, the, um, you know, again, the, these technologies are not very commonplace. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're still very much in the research phase um, and nothing's being used, to my knowledge, for for actual practical or clinical um, settings yet. Um, so, so I think we're still many years away uh, from saying, hey, you know, come on over and then we'll, you know, print out something like 23andMe, you know, full profile of your of your cognition and, and, and individual behavior. Um, uh, you know, individual traits, you know, we're, 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 I think we're, you know, many, many years from away from that. Um, so, uh, so, I, so I think it'll still need, to, the discussion will still need to be hypothetical for now. Oh, this is a shame. I want to go and get, I wanted to go and get it done. My biggest concern though, I did think about it is like, what, I've got that kind of mind. And I think a lot of people have this where you just, if you know, someone can read your mind, you'll think the worst possible horrible things just because it would, you know, do you know what I mean? It just pops out. It would uh -huh. be like, I want to kill you. That would just pop, even though I don't think it, that'll, that'll pop into my head. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, we're, we're not, we're far from being that specific. So like even the the visually stunning examples that we talked about earlier, um, you know, that's all happening because it's it's easier to read a brain's response to a to a percept, percept, to an image, to a to something coming through the senses, uh, and then when you have self-generated um, uh, images or thoughts, um, we're, we're still very far away from being able to decode, let's say, like as you say, some kind of intent or some kind of very specific thoughts. Uh, you know, something that's more semantic based, I think is going to be harder to read out. Do you see some sort of minority report happening where, for those who haven't seen the film, it's about, you know, uh, guessing that crimes happen before they are going to happen? Yeah, you know, I, I love uh, science fiction movies and I, I'm always looking for um, links between movies and, and the science that we do. And of course, I even get inspiration from these science fiction movies. Minority Report is one of the most fascinating movies I've, I've seen uh, because of the premise that you can predict uh, behavior, which is, I think, an ultimate goal for a psychologist and neuroscientist. Um, all the technologies we describe right now, the reading out of, you know, the mind reading is all about present mind reading. So we can really mainly only uh, read, we can barely read out what people are seeing and thinking in the present. Uh, and then using that to predict future behaviors, uh, I think is really uh, far, uh, you know, I think that's, I don't, I don't see that happening in our lifetimes. Uh, that's where it gets to your earlier point about determinism. Uh, you know, our behaviors are governed by so many different factors, uh, many of which are not even coming from the brain, they're external, uh, right? And, and so to the extent that we just have no ability to predict all of that, even with big data, um, I, I, I think that's what makes the movie Minority Report so fascinating is that, um, you know, I, I don't see any, um, uh, possibility in the near future of that uh, being possible. Presumably, theoretically, you could map out the whole future, but you'd need to not only know everybody's brains and genes and what they're thinking at any moment, you'd need to know every single That's environmental right. factor, the weather, the, the moon, every, right. well, that stuff you could predict, I guess. But yeah, impossible. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Or whether someone like swerved in front of someone else to 
you know, illicit road rage, you know, for example, you know, just there's so many factors. And then even if you knew every single factor, you know, just because of the essential randomness of, of, of physics, you know, quantum mechanics and all that, there's, it's just intrinsically unpredictable, uh, even at the very basic atomic level. So if that's unpredictable and random and stochastic, then I think there's, you know, not a lot of hope to predict behaviors. Um, Again, you could probably predict behaviors better than some a pundit may. You know, I think that would be a goal for a research. Um, and also, you can try to do predictions in more, much more circumscribed settings. Uh, and that's actually the focus of our research is maybe not minority report, but can we predict the onset of dementia or the progression of dementia? Can we scan a baby's brain and predict whether this child will develop autism? You know, these are more practical kinds of predictions that, that we're act, people are actually working on. Uh, can we predict, you know, based on a diagnosis of a reading disorder or depression, can we predict what kind of treatment or what kind of training would be more effective? These are more practical goals that I think will be, um, that, um, that, that people are actually, you know, really um, actively pursuing. So though you were looking at, I mean, there, there were there were stats you showed about um, the rates of recidivism, a word I always struggle to say, uh, people who leave prison and, and are more likely to commit, commit crimes and go back to prison again. So that, to an extent, maybe that's the closest thing we can get for now to some sort of minority report. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and to the extent that brain scans can aid the legal system better than, let's say, a, you know, provide extra information for a parole judge to, um, you know, make more accurate predictions and decisions for parole, then, then again, there will be practical benefits there, even if we don't get as far as minority report. And then autism, you mentioned autism, that's an interesting one, because it's always talked of as, again, as being on the spectrum. So again, is, is everybody autistic to some extent? Or, or is there some sort of divide a delineation yeah yeah I, I wouldn't say that everyone is on uh, 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 is on the spectrum or is a little bit autistic to some extent you know it's it's basically it's mainly a it's a complex but you know can be summarized as a as a social uh, disorder um, and dysfunction and uh, you know and there's you know a large spectrum of sociability across people uh, and and there's certainly a range of sociability that may be closer to autism, but can still be very highly functional, very normal, uh, and actually necessary for a for a diverse um, uh, society, right? Um, so 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 I wouldn't go as far as to say that we're all um, uh, autistic, um, but there certainly are. You know, they're they're at the extremes. It it can be very difficult for both the child and the family. Is there brain differences? I, I think probably the most famous or supposedly autistic person in the world might be Elon Musk, um, who says he has Asperger's. I think, which is that a particular kind as well of autism? Yeah, that's right. That 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 that's that's a high. You know, that that's a a more milder form. It's on the spectrum, and and um and. But again, as as you know, as you see from these examples, can be you can be very highly functioning. He seems pretty smart, that guy. Um, can you yes. can you imagine um, in the future? I'm just throwing all these questions at you because I'm just I did, I'm not not often yeah, I get no, to but... talk to a professor of your standing. Um, uh, oh no, it's my pleasure <laughs> to be here. Thank um, you. Do you imagine? Uh, a gadget that people can have one day. This is just, I'm thinking of my secrets book again about the death of secrets where they will be able to just look into people's minds and get their secrets out and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it, it won't be possible with MRI. 
um, because MRI is just too crude. Uh, the signals we get are too crude. We're not looking at individual neurons. We're looking at very large populations, millions and tens of millions of neurons at a time. Um, so, um, you know, in, in, as, as our most basic unit of measurement, I should say. Um, and, and so I don't think MRI is going to give us that capability. Um, if there comes, emerges a technology that allows us to measure every single neuron's activity and their interactions with other neurons, uh, then it's theoretically possible. Um, but, um, yeah, but, but I don't see that. Even that technology does not exist. So, um, so uh, at least not, not at a whole brain level that, uh, that can be measured non-invasively in humans. Um, so, yeah, so we're, we're decades away. Oh, I really want to see that kind of thing, although just, just because it would just be so mad. I mean, that yeah. uh, Jack Gallant thing that, that you speak of, which was the, the, the videos and the images showed yeah. in people's minds, that was now like over a decade ago. So, I mean, I, I guess we like to think on the outside, everyone's always hearing that progress is made. Uh, there's that, that sort of buzzword exponentially, which often isn't actually, it's not really the case, is it? So I guess we like to think like, look, we've got iPhones now. So by next year, you'll be reading our brains. But is it, I mean, what, has there been much progress made since Jack Gallant came out with that stuff 12 years ago? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the work on faces that my lab did was a, was a big step uh, in advancing the technologies and the work that other people have done building on our studies. Are, are, you know, again, the images are out there. They're, they're pretty impressive. You know, you can see like dramatic improvements in the decoding ability. Uh, but again, it's, it's confined to face recognition, which we were able, there are many good models of, you know, in order to do brain imaging, you need to be able to convert things to, to math. And, and there are many good models to convert the face features into, into mathematical features. Uh, and that's why this all works. Um, but we don't really have good ways of converting semantic knowledge to math yet. Um, you, know, we're, we're, you know, obviously AI is giving us tremendous um, advances. Um, but, but I, I guess my point is that even if we were to have all those mathematical descriptions at a very good detailed level, the MRI itself is too crude. You know, it, it's good enough to do face decoding, but, uh, you know, you're distinguishing between whether you want to have a steak or uh, a pizza for dinner. That, that's just, I, I just see that as being far off um, given, given the MRI technology. Are people looking to make something that uh, is, is a little bit closer to each neuron than the MRI that can that can go in a little bit deeper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the work now is, is uh, you know, based in animal models. Uh, and so there are remarkable um, ways to measure brain activity in, in you know, in, in, in animal models, including invertebrates, um, where, where the neuronal systems are a lot more simple. And of course, there are, there are technologies known as optogenetics, where you can actually manipulate uh, brain activity. You can, you know, just basically turn on a neuron with, with light, uh, you know, of a certain spectrum. Um, the, and so, the, you know, the technologies are pretty magical and amazing. Um, but to scale up to a human brain and to be able to measure brain activity through the thick skull in a way that is not harmful or invasive is, you know, again, very, very far away from that. <laughs> I just imagined in my mind that I can hear every listener thinking the same thing, which is, what is my dog or cat thinking? Do we have a, in, any inclination from this work into, <laughs> into whether they think, whether they, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it, there, there are people who, who are doing those kinds of studies, uh, you know, m mainly with dogs. I think dogs are easier <laughs> to work with than cats. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, there, there are people who are doing those Ooh, kinds of studies. What have we found so far? I mean, are they are they thinking in any sort of yeah. way that that or is it just like all it all just like food? <laughs> You know they're they're in very highly highly they're in very highly experimental con, uh, contrived settings. So I don't I don't think we know what the uh, what what the everyday dog is thinking in the moment. Um, you know right now the, the the studying the psychology of the dog uh, is is even that work is not well advanced. Uh, and you know we can never have a great neuroscience of dog mind reading until we have a good psychology of dog mind reading so so you know the work is still very early stages i suppose it might be possible to really communicate with with your dog one day maybe you know that that would be a, a really cool i mean i i think i think owners feel they are communicating with their dogs <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> right and um uh yeah and 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 at least and again like and this is kind of maybe a, a fundamental question about mind reading uh, is that at least for the next, you know, I, I think there's a lot of good use for this science because we're trying to do things that you can't do um, from verbal interactions, from assessments, from interviews and such. We're trying to get beyond that. Um, but for the everyday person, you know, and, and maybe this is relevant, for, this could be a, a point for your book, is that at the end of the day, you know, the best way to figure out what's on someone's mind is to be in <laughs> communication, right? To, to talk with someone, you know, that, that, you know, it's a base, very basic human social activity. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, certainly for the time being, uh, it, it is the best way to figure out what's on someone's mind. Uh, and and we'll, we'll get a lot more progress just finding better ways for people to talk with each other, especially people who have different opinions and, uh, and uh, political views on things, you know. Fundamentally, you just need to get everyone in the room talking with each other. Yeah, well, that's that seems to be a dying art to an extent. When people have differing views. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it is. It's yeah, exactly. And that's why that's why I raise it because you know even that basic, you know that most basic, um, you know fundamental importance of being in communication with each other and having open dialogue is, uh, as you say, it's a dying art and we need to, we can't let it go. There was that professor, uh, Peter Bogosian, do you know about him? He's often going to universities. Uh, he goes, he's often doing like university. He, he's just, uh, to, to get some of the, he, he feels that, and I guess you're in a, a very interesting position to be able to speak on this actually, as you know, as you were Dean of, of Yale, uh, there is concern from outside of academia. We, we're sort of looking in, we don't know that a lot of young students are not at universities engaging with ideas that they think might be harmful and that kind of thing. Is that, are you seeing that or, or not at all? Um, I, I think I, I am definitely aware of, of that public perception and, and many incidents, which would suggest that students are, are closing their minds and uh, and not uh, being uh, open to ideas that are different from their own or that might contradict their own values. Um, but I can say that you know if you ask what is the purpose of a of a college education and what is our one of our top priorities on a campus. So speaking as a dean, uh, I would say that it is to promote uh, conversation to help. Uh, students to seek out differences, to seek out views that contradict their own. You know, th that is ultimately the goal of education is to help your mind and brain see and learn things that are different from what you come in knowing or assuming 
uh, or believing. Uh, if we don't challenge a person's beliefs and a person's views, and if students are not comfortable uh, with with stretching their minds in that way, uh, then I think learning does not happen. Uh, so I think it's absolutely fundamental to a co college education that we uh, are, are you know, open our minds to new perspectives and obviously new knowledge. And, uh, and, and I, think, I think most institutions do a good job with that. Uh, there, there are challenges that we see in the papers and such, but that just shows that we're trying, right? We, we are bringing controversial speakers. We are bringing controversial views. And so, yeah, it's unfortunate that some students react the way they do, but, but the fact that, that it's happening means that we're, we're, we're pushing them. Yeah, I understand why it's difficult because I think for students, especially young people today, it's very important to be like socially. There's a there's a division between what is you know the socially progressive stuff and then sometimes the the, the fair facts of science. I had uh, Dr. Gad Sad on here. Do you know him? Mm -hmm. Oh, so he was he was talking about you know developing nomological networks for everything, and he said that that's sort of a dying art that people and you know they don't want to build up enough evidence for things. They just want to whatever fits with their ideology. Yeah, yeah, and and again, our our goal is to challenge that and to stretch people and to make people confront uh, views and ideologies that are different from what they have. Let's get on to the painometer, which is another thing you talked about. The pain. So, so doctors might be able to actually feel. Is that possible to feel what people when people go over go to the doctor, they could feel what you're feeling? Yeah, and that's that's actually a great example. Uh, so uh, the painometer is basically using MRI to measure the level of pain that a person is experiencing in the moment. And that work was, uh, that again is another example of something that I not I don't do in my lab per se, um, but I frequently cite as work from an outstanding colleague, Tor Wager, um, who's at Dartmouth University. Um, and, uh, and he published this painometer in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a very prestigious journal. And it's a terrific example of how uh, mind reading can be put to practical use uh, because uh, right now the measurements of pain are very subjective. Uh, and more, but more importantly, because they're subjective, you can't measure them when a patient is under anesthesia, for example, uh, or if a patient is in a coma or otherwise debilitated, uh, you know, just had a stroke and is otherwise unconscious. So, so the goal there is one is to make pain measurements more objective, uh, but two, can you start taking measurements when, uh, when, when, uh, when a patient is not conscious? And, and that, I think it's a great example of where brain imaging can be very, very uh, useful. You know, can you measure pain in animals uh, with this? Uh, because obviously they don't, they're not able to you know, uh, quantify the level of pain they may be experiencing, uh, and this might be a good way to uh, give them more comfort and and care uh, when 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 they have to go through necessary medical procedures. That's the the what, what you're talking about in terms of like anesthetics. That's the nightmare, isn't it? That you get put to sleep for an operation, but you still feel the pain, and you have no way of. The, I suppose that in in those very rare instances, what's happening? It's the is it the, the you're paralyzed physically, but it's not cognitively. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you're you're paralyzed physically, so you cannot express um, how you're feeling. Um, and um, yeah, that, that is absolutely the the ultimate nightmare. One of the ultimate nightmares, um, uh, you know. And related to that, uh, there, the, you know, this work has been used. Sorry, MRI has been used uh, to study consciousness in patients with in persistent vegetative state uh, who also are unable to report uh, or respond uh, 
consciously to any questions or or prompts and such. Um, and um, and 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 again, you know, you can actually uh, read out thought in about 10, 15% of patients, again, not my work, um, but you can read out that activity um, uh, with MRI. That was a study published in uh, 2006, really, really amazing study published in science. I love that you, you, you always want to show it's not your, it's a science, scientists have to do that. It's, okay, it's, it's, it's a very professional, and I, and I understand that as, yeah. as, as well. Um, we, we should, we'll assume it wasn't your work unless you say otherwise, <laughs> but uh, no, no, it's fine. But, okay, but yeah, uh, um, so is that, should we assume then that people in comas are often or sometimes conscious? Well, you know what I mean? Um, so, so I think based on that work, um, I think, I think we, I think the assumption is that most are not conscious, um, but, um, uh, or certainly would not have reportable, um, uh, memories from from their time, and and so that's another question. Is like if you don't remember anything, like what does that mean for 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 uh, what 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 that experience has uh, uh, you know in your lifetime and such? But um, the but I think there's there's a pretty good understanding because there's different ways to measure pain. For example, I, I, you know I, I think it's I think people do understand that um, that anesthesia is effective in uh, in blocking pain and. Um, uh, as we know it, and um, and and I and I, I and I think you know the most most patients in comas or persistent vegetative state are just are not there just you know uh, writing novels or anything or or, or experiencing frustration. I, I think they're they're truly kind of like more like what we would view to be like sleep. Imagine if you found out that everybody who goes under anesthesia for operations does actually feel the pain but it's just the memory that shuts off so as soon as it's finished you forget that you had all of that but you know i think there are other physiological measures of pain uh you know besides brain scanners that that suggest that they're they're not really experiencing pain yeah um and and, and the question is like what is pain right pain itself is 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 just a it's it's mainly a conscious it's a conscious it's a conscious state, right? Um, and so if you neutralize the conscious state, I mean, obviously the physical, um, I guess, for, you know, intrusion uh, is there, right? Uh, you know, uh, in, in surgery and so on. Uh, so pain is really just mainly it's an alarm system, you know, telling you you got to avoid that situation and move away. Um, and so it's kind of more like, you know, turning off the alarm, right? The door is open, the window's open, or the window's broken, right? I mean, that's happening, we know. Um, and it's mainly just turning off the alarm. Have you seen, I'm just, I'm just flipping, I'm going everywhere now. Have you seen those monkeys that can play video games with their brains, the Neuralink? Yes, uh, yes, I'm aware of that work, yes. Is that as, is that as like... Is that as impressive as it looks, or are there sort of sleight of hands going on? No, no, it is. It's super impressive, uh, and it's especially impressive because many of those technologies are now being applied to uh, uh, humans, uh, human patients, right? So if you can, so MRI is limited because you're, you know, it's non-invasive. You know, we're, we're not opening up the skull or have any electrodes implanted in the brain. Uh, but what the work with the monkeys controlling robotic arms is showing is that if you can implant electrodes on the surface of the brain, you know, reading out neuronal activity at a precise, in a precise manner, then you can do some really remarkable things like train uh, the monkey to control a robotic arm or train a human uh, patient uh, who has no other choice but to have this implant in their brain uh, to, um, to control a computer cursor, 
Um, and um, so, uh, so, so yes, so that form of mind reading uh, is definitely demonstrating that greater precision can be achieved and greater um, practical use can be achieved if you're able to implant the electrodes. But there's not really a safe way of doing so right now. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, because that would be great for you know people with things like Parkinson's, I imagine, or people who have lost limbs and that kind of thing. That's right. That's right. For paraplegics and such. Yeah. Another thing I want to ask you about is I'm a multilinguist. I speak five languages. You know, the, there's you know even without neuroscience, we know from psychology uh, that multilinguals have many advantages um, compared to monolinguals. Um, and, you know, it just has something to do with your brain's ability to manage so many different languages, um, the syntax and semantics of all these different languages. And, and this is a study from my lab uh, where literally last year we published a, a study showing that if I were to scan people, I can tell whether you're multilingual or not. Your brain is different from monolinguals. And is that true of, uh, and I suppose there must be some difference in those who have learned as a child, who, who are just totally fluent and whatever. I learned all of these languages uh, in my 20s. I'm not as proficient, you know, every single language, each of the, the places where I go, they would know instantly that I'm not from there, you know, so would that presumably change in some way? Uh, you know, that definitely um, there's a lot of work showing that the earlier you learn a language, the more uh, the more native it looks uh, and the more native it sounds. Um, but and our study wasn't able to distinguish the length. Um, you know, we, we did a very basic cut between multilingual versus monolingual. Um, but future studies should be able to tease apart, um, uh, for example, the age of acquisition and such. Um, but we, we just don't have enough in the database. We don't have enough people scanned to really build the models yet. And what kind of things were you seeing in, in, in multilingual people? And is this something specific to language or could it be, is it just that it's an extra thing that keeps your brain active? Yeah, it, it's not specific to language, um, partly because language is such a full, you know, what I call a whole brain activity, right? It, you know, it just really, you know, language, speaking, comprehension, it really fully engages so many different parts of your brain. And actually, I should say the same thing applies to attention as well. Your ability to focus is almost, it's a full brain activity. Uh, and that's why our models work so well is because unlike work prior to ours, we really fully analyze the whole brain as opposed to specific regions. And so the same thing applies to language, which is that our ability to distinguish multilingual versus monolingual is based on the fact that the brain as a whole is different, not, not just very, very specific regions. There are some regions that are more different than others, um, but it's not really restricted to language. It's, it's, it, again, it, it engages the whole brain. Um, and um, yeah. And, but also, you know, with with impact on cognition. So there's studies showing that multilinguals can do certain kinds of cognitive tasks better than than monolinguals do. Uh, again, just because of your brain's overall ability to manage a lot of information. And because for me, I was always I'm quite forgetful. I'm not very good at a lot. Of, and then I just got really into languages. And the way that it works, just from a from a just from my own point of view, is the strangest thing. I don't, I, I don't really understand it because it's. When I first started learning, you know, when you learn one language, okay, but when there's a few different ones, how my brain can sort of snap into the gear of like a whole sentence in Spanish without constantly checking, wait, but is that a French word or was that the German word or whatever? I, it, it's almost like it's a different corner of my mind for each language. I don't know if you know more about how it works. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's such a, an impressive skill that uh, 
you know, there's not a really great understanding to of, of how the brain does it. Um, you know, our, our study was a very first step to try to look at the differences first and then try to understand how those differences contributed to the ability to, to manage uh, different languages. Um, but, you know, basic one way to think about it is that, you know, our brain, our cognition is always sensitive to context. Uh, you know, we're, we're always mindful of context and we use that context to make certain decisions and to choose words and to choose actions. And so language is kind of like a context, you know, it's, it's kind of in some ways an ultimate thought context. Uh, like if you're, th if you're thinking in a certain language, then it just automatically activates all the appropriate words and syntax and, and, and uh, other aspects of being able to rapidly generate speech and an utterance. I suppose you might get that. What, what you talk about with regards to just like having this all encompassing knowledge, uh, piano players, for example, that's another, is that a similar type kind of skill? Is that a similar place in the brain or is it a totally different thing? Uh, you know, piano skills are, uh, you know, again, it's also another remarkable uh, ability that people have. Um, and uh, a lot of the, um, you know, the act of playing a piano can, can be ascribed to the motor cortex. Um, uh, you know, we're, and we, it's pretty well defined <laughs> in the brain. I'm, I'm pointing to it right now, but it's basically on the t top of your head. Um, and, um, the, but, but of course the musicality of a performance, you know, again, is a full brain activity, you know, you, you draw on memory, you draw on your emotional areas, uh, you, you draw on your frontal lobe, which coordinates all that activity. So it's, it's basically a full brain activity. It's fascinating. I wish I've got a little keyboard here that my girlfriend got me for my birthday and I've been trying and it's so hard to keep up the motivation, but I, I drew a lot of parallels with language learning in terms of just, I know that if I do it every single day for a certain amount of time for four or five years, I will, whether I'll be a, a genius at it as another thing, but I know I'll be quite good. Uh, and it's just very hard to find that time and motivation. That's the only thing. Yeah, but that but that's the joy, right? Of of learning is you know whether it's a language or whether it's an instrument, um, you're basically rewiring your brain, uh, and you know and that's that's kind of fundamental to uh, to to what uh, to to f the thinking of a neuroscientist and a psychologist, which is that you know we 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 work with the assumption that the brain is plastic and and why, and that it's adaptable and that it's basically a massive learning device uh, which which is why i was so resistant to uh the any link to eugenics or genetics uh you know because because again the 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 whole point of the brain is that is that you're not uh you know beholden by your genes or the physical device you know the whole point of the brain is that it's like a computer right it, it is a learning device uh and there's there's great joy in training your own brain through a new skill like the piano or language uh so you're you're being you're being very good to your brain but don't some brains uh have bits in them i'm being very specific specific and sciencey here they have bits in them that make them want to be more hardworking and make them more curious and that kind of thing so that would still have some sort of eugenic implication yeah, personally, I don't believe that uh, some people are born more curious or less curious. I, re I really think that's m mostly environment. Uh, and and also, I believe that even if someone is an, not a curious person uh, uh, or, or, or an unmotivated person, I firmly believe that we can change that with, with the right context, with the right learning environment, or with the right just motivation. 
You know, sometimes kids are bored in school, are not focused in school because they're bored. Uh, you just got to find something that they, that excites them. Uh, and unfortunately, life offers many many options. For me, it was, I think, I didn't concentrate much at school. And for me, it was tiredness. And I don't think I realized how unusual, it, or maybe not right it was to be that tired all the time. But I was playing computer games and stuff at night, not sleeping well. And then you've got these like eight, nine hour days which, which I, I know we work, but like you, you put all your energy into like geography for half an hour or an hour. And then it's like, okay, I've learned all this. And then you've got history for an hour. And then you've got, and you've got to motivate yourself again and again. And I'm not suggesting I know a better system, but the, it's tough work being at high school. That's right. I, I, I completely agree. Um, and, um, and, and this is why, uh, this is why teachers are so valued because, you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're working, uh, upstream, you know, you're you're working uh, against the wind. Uh, students are tired. It's hard. It's hard for anyone, even adults, to stay engaged for that long. Sitting down uh, with minimal physical activity between and minimal. So, so what a great teacher does is a great teacher can engage students again, most likely by having them be a part of the learning experience. Like, not you know, not having it not be passive, but active and interactive and, and collaborative. You know, it, obviously it's a basic tenet in education that the more collaborative and interactive uh, the learning experience is, the more engaged and the more effective it will be. Um, and, um, but again, it's, it's a skill that is not always practical in the classroom setting and not all teachers have it. One of the most undervalued uh, jobs or skills, I think, being a good teacher and it, they, they don't get paid well. They don't, well, a lot of them don't. And Absolutely. They, they need to get paid better. Teachers need to get paid better. I have a lot of respect for teachers, uh, although I didn't when I, was, when I was being taught by them, I didn't. Yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining me, Dr. Marvin Chun, the Dean of Yale University. That was really, really great. And I'm so happy he was able to give up his time for that. Get in touch with him to let him know you enjoyed that on his Yale University link or watch his TED Talk to see those amazing images of what the brain can see. It's pretty incredible, really. Uh, that's all for today. Next up should be, because I'm a little bit behind the schedule. I've done a schedule because I'm going away for a few days and all that stuff. So I think it's Seth Ferranti, a former drug dealer who got caught by the FBI and then went on the run and faked his own death by pretending to jump off a cliff. That's one hell of an episode and gives new meaning to the concept of being on the edge. And I hope that's enough of a cliffhanger for you. Because no one did fall off the cliff. I can make that, I can make that joke, can't I? Um, about the cliffhanger. If he had died or something from falling off of it, then I wouldn't have made it. But he was fine. Um, well, he got arrested and spent a couple of decades in prison, so it's not really fine. But, you know, that's drugs and stuff. We'll talk about the morality of that and all that stuff. Thanks for listening. Please do share this podcast with your friends. Tell them all about it tell your family i'll see you next time okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.